We're back with the APG podcast. My name is Bogdana. I'm a planning director and I run the Putting People Back Into Planning series of the podcast. This is a very long overdue episode, but it's still summertime. We're still struggling with the calendars of the people we're trying to interview. So there's always a bit of a gap between the episodes. However, this one, I think, was well worth the wait because we spoke to Jane Cunningham. Jane Cunningham is a former planner. She used to work for DDB and Ogilvy, and then she ran Tribal DDB. But a fair bit into her career, she realized that there was something wrong in the way advertising was talking to women, so she decided to do something about it. So she set up a research consultancy called Pretty Little Head that focuses on teaching brands and marketing departments how to address women. Now, Jane is one of the most compelling and impressive people I've ever spoken to. I was thoroughly taken with the theories behind her company, with the ideas in the two books she co-wrote, and particularly with her very charming manner. So it was a, an absolute delight to, to have this conversation. You will see that it's a very hefty conversation. It's pretty long, uh, which is why there's no outro to this podcast. You, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, I did, and um, I learned a lot. And at the end, there's a bit of an intermezzo where we talk about the recent decision by the ASA to ban two ads on grounds of uh, gender stereotyping. So hopefully that's uh, something that's very interesting to, to get into. So let's get into it. Um, back with the APG podcast, and I am here with Jane Cunningham, who is the co-founder of Pretty Little Head, a strategic research consultancy that focuses on opening businesses up to a more female audience. Hi, Jane. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, it's nice to be here. We got introduced by a mutual acquaintance in the APG board, and we were very keen to speak to you because we're running this series called Putting People Back Into Planning. And you guys are working on something really, really interesting, which is bringing a more uh, female audience perspective to everything that brands do. Now, obviously, when you guys started this, because you are running this with your co-founder, partner, uh, Philippa Roberts, um, that was about 10 years ago, and I do believe that there was a dire need for, for this type of, of work. But tell me in the context of today, how is it that you see your, your, your work contributing to, to brand strategy and the brands everywhere? Well, I guess when we started, we had been working in advertising agencies for quite a few years, and we had noticed that the sort of energy and enthusiasm in agencies seemed to go into male targeted briefs rather than uh, female ones. And there were loads of formula in female advertising, you know, the science bit, women being used as vectors for product messages and often women were presented through a sort of masculine lens so there was a lot of stereotyping sexual objectification women being presented as pleasing or without personality and I suppose we believed at the time that there had to be a better more original and creative approach to targeting women particularly because at the time it was becoming increasingly clear and increasingly well documented that women were in fact the biggest growth audience and remain the biggest growth audience in the um in the world. So that's why we that's why we kicked off the company and why we wrote the book. And how do you think that uh, pans out today? Because obviously, I mean, we've gone through a bit of change. And, you know, two, two years ago, two, three years ago, we had the whole femvertising craziness where all the brands seemed to kind of enlist themselves behind the cause, um, the causes that women supported. How, how are you 
How are you finding that your work now is different from what you were doing 10 years ago? Um, I mean, I think women are obviously much more conscious of the ways in which they're represented if they diminish them. So where once women maybe would have just eye rolled at the worst excesses of objectification um, and the marketing that seemed to assume they're a bit sort of half witted, they're now much more immediately vocal about um, about rejecting it. And that's true across all ages. I guess what we've seen most recently is a series of sort of little mini revolutions across each of the life stages of women. So younger women questioning whether gender has any meaning at all. Women in their 20s and 30s rewriting all those traditional scripts and more and more rejecting the idea of marriage and children and women with children refusing to conform to the perfectionist ideals, even if they still still feel a bit of pressure to, to achieve that. And of course, older women, perhaps the most radical change happening amongst that audience who are increasingly vocal and frustrated that the world seems to have ignored their previous cohorts and they're not prepared as the richest, as the best educated, as the first teenagers, as the first feminist to put up with being represented, which they often are as a bit of a joke or in most cases just sort of pitiful. So we're seeing lots of change amongst women and across all the all the different life stages. And there's been clearly there's been an incredibly sort of positive and progressive push in marketing to challenge the way in which women get defined. And femvertising has been brilliant at raising this sort of consciousness around the overt biases in marketing. And the more this gets done, the better. And the more women are encouraged to challenge it, the better. But it's probably also time to look at some of the less overt and more subtextual sort of biases that exist. And at some point, we do need to get past the representation of women as a special needs case, which um, femvertising can sometimes suggest, we would say. I think we feel there's a sort of a new normal emerging and the idea of femvertising is starting to feel a little old in that context or perhaps beside the point. And in this new normal, a new set of principles is starting to emerge, which we see in campaigns like Girl Gaze and from the female author brands and in new definitions of female beauty, which focus on creativity rather than perfection and which present women of all ages and races normal rather than exceptional or tokenistic. I mean, that's really, really interesting because uh, one of the things that <clears throat> I think femvertising has done is to bring a number of issues very starkly onto the onto the kind of stage. But the other thing, as you mentioned, was that it did feel a bit at some point it was getting a bit too strident. And then it got a bit, like you said, tokenistic, where you felt that brands were actually just catering to a trend rather than actually doing the right thing. And it's, I mean, it's very refreshing to hear you say that it's probably something that is, was a bit of a peak in enthusiasm. And now we're, we're getting back to what is normal. Do you have a sense that, uh, that there is a new definition of what it means to be a woman? Um, I suppose we, I suppose we feel that, that, that clearly there isn't just one idea of what it is to be a woman. There are many, many different definitions and that in and of itself is progressive given the way things were when we uh, when we started out i mean i guess the the problem with femvertising although it has been immensely helpful and an overcorrection certainly was needed given that a lot of marketing was stuck in a rut which was heavily stereotyping of women i think there's there's a a need to sort of revisit where femvertising has taken marketing. And there's a perception that the female aspiration to replace sort of cuteness and compliance of the past and that sort of imagery, that you just replace that with 
all women now have to be ballsy and rebe- rebellious. And in fact, in the research that we've been doing most recently, what we found is that when you ask women what their aspiration is in terms of personality and how they want to be seen, they're much more likely to say they want to be funny or kind or intelligent or strong or helpful rather than either cute and compliant or ballsy and rebellious. And actually being independent is of men is also a sort of key aspiration to be financially independent, to be independent of the need to be beautiful, so to be known for your mind, not just your appearance want to be in happy relationships, romantic relationships for sure, but don't want to be defined by them. So there's a sense that female identity is sort of separating from what it is that other people want them to be and that actually it's much more self-defined. And there's a huge variety, I guess, within that. That's fascinating. But I'm wondering, obviously, how do you get to this level of understanding of of what defines a female audience? And I I know that you, in particular, have a specific way of looking at researching female audiences, which relies on on six principles. And I'd be curious if you could take me through some of the principles that are uh, that underlie the work that you do, because I found um, I found them actually quite revolutionary, you know, this idea that, um, that for instance, women have a tendency to interpret through subtext. So they, they're always wondering, so what's the subtext of what's being said? Or, you know, the importance of the sensory aspect of everything that is presented to them. So can you run me through some of the principles that, that you, you use when you're researching a specific audience? Sure. When we, when we when we started, we, we we sort of studied research as well as studying women to see how methods. I, I mean, I mean, why was it that marketing seemed to have such a powerful disconnect often for women? So why was it? How was it that marketing ended up um, being produced that women felt disconnected from or felt wasn't kind of properly understanding what it was that they needed? And why were there whole categories that seemed to leave women feeling kind of out in the cold and either ignored or not properly understood? And so we looked at the research and the way, the sort of methods that got deployed, particularly in qualitative research, which should be the sort of best way to understand um, what people are really thinking and feeling and came up with arrived at six principles that we felt was going to we're going to help women um, in a research context reveal themselves in a way that perhaps they um, hadn't been previously. And the first principle was about getting women to understand what the purpose of the research was. So rather than treat women as sort of guinea pigs in an experimental sort of context or a petri dish, the idea was to say to women, and often we would get marketing directors to write a letter saying, look, we realise we haven't really understood women. We really, really need you to help us with this project because we're trying to launch Brand X or develop Experience Y um, in a way that we think is going to meet your needs. And just saying to women and starting the conversation in a way that said, look, we really are going to listen. We're not here to either get you to say what we want to hear um, or we're not here just to try and sell you something. We really, really do want to listen that that felt like that that started the conversation on the right on the right foot. Um, And then the second principle that we felt was important is that quite often in markets, um, the sensory and the the aesthetic are left to the sort of very end of the development um, process rather than kind of felt as central and perhaps even even the sort of main point of difference of any 
product um, or service. And so we wanted to bring the sensor in the aesthetic to the fore in the conversations. And quite often that wasn't really discussed or when it was brought up by women in research groups, it was felt to be um, not a kind of major decisive decision making difference. It was felt to be a sort of a, a sort of side aspect of the of the development program. And so uh, when we were looking at brands, for example, like Kath Kidston or the White Company, when we started out, those are the brands that were heavily connecting with women and they were heavily connecting because of the aesthetic. So when we're working on projects with clients, we'll always ask them to consider the aesthetic and the sensory and the development and to bring that much more to the forefront of the conversations that we have. And certainly in the stimulus, stimulus material that we bring into research, then we would prioritise the aesthetic in a way that perhaps hadn't happened previously. Um, the third principle was really about, yes, is about subtext and listening to the implicit, not just the explicit. Quite often research techniques are very, they can be very headline, very textual. Um, and certainly when you're looking at creative development and when you're looking at advertising, quite often what gets communicated is at a subtextual level. And often the questioning tended to be at the headline level, kind of what 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 do you think it what do you think it's saying to you? Um, rather than how does it make you feel and what aspects, however small, however tiny the detail, what are these details communicating to you? And you don't have to rationalise it, not asking women to explain or be logical about why it makes them feel that way, just that it, just that it does and that's enough that it does. If I can, if I can just ask a question about principle principle three, because I think when you're when you're talking about this idea of reading between the lines, I wonder is there a peril there that people will go? There's a an inbuilt bias in looking at women as people who are more prone to interpretation and more prone to reading between the lines, but also as people who will be more influenced by the aesthetic dimension of something. Are you at all worried that? someone will say well wait a minute why is that the case i mean our our our, our research is based on i guess the sort of thousands of research projects that we've done and and also doing various studies on the brands that seem to disproportionately connect with women and our findings were that that brands that paid attention to the aesthetic had a disproportionately positive impact on the way women um women felt about them um it's not to say that men don't care about aesthetics but it's also it, it is the case when we've done equivalent projects with for example a sample of men and a sample of women and we do quite often talk to men in our research groups um and we've asked them to consider the development of a store or of a product that men will often focus in on different aspects of the experience whereas women will often prioritize the uh, prioritize the aesthetic so that's why we that's why we reflect it. I mean, our, our, our aim at the beginning of setting up the company was to help clients prioritise what it was that women prioritised. And those were the things that rose to the surface. Why that's the case um, is for somebody else to answer, really. Yeah. Um, and there's two more principles left in, uh, in your in your um, luggage of, of principles. So if you could run me through uh, both of those as well, um, because I think one of them is, again, very interesting, 
the the difference between the female life stages and the impact that they have on brand choices is actually quite important. And it's interestingly a very a, a topic that has become quite a contention point in conversations that I have with my friends, because we're all turning 40 or going in, in into that age bracket. And it feels like you're like a significant change is happening in your life. Um, and you, you don't feel like you're old, but you also don't feel like you're very young. So you're almost in between. Well, there's 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 a I mean, there's a, a sad truth about marketing, which is that uh, the older you get, the less um, people market to you. And it's in part because only 6% of people who work in marketing are over 50. Um, and it's in part, I guess, the sort of youthful lens that gets deployed in marketing. And I guess there has been historically a cult of youth because of the um, growth of that younger audience in the population, which has led to a, a bias to youthfulness rather than rather than age. We're very keen to help clients understand just how important the older audience is, not just over 40, but over 50 and indeed over um, 60, 70 and even 80, that the, 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 the group of women who are over 50 is the biggest growth um, audience in the UK and in fact across Europe, the US um, and in other countries. It is a global phenomenon, and yet they are the least likely to be targeted by any brand. And nearly ninety percent of women over fifty would say that they feel excluded by, um, by the by advertising and by and by marketing. And they're so often treated sort of as a joke, um, or not included at all. Um, and the reality is that priorities do change as people age, certainly as women age. Um, but the enthusiasm and energy levels are often maintained, particularly as women pay more attention to health and fitness from an earlier uh, earlier age as they do now. So there's huge opportunity for brands to target to 40 pluses, 50 pluses um, and older. But it's not something that has yet really been embraced, we, we, we feel, and is something that needs um, needs attention because it's it's negligent commercially not to target the audience who has the vast majority of the wealth in the country. Seventy six percent of the nation's financial wealth is amongst is amongst that audience. If you were to break down some of the research that you've done into this is what we've heard about the twenties. This is about this is what we heard about the thirties, and this is what we've heard about the thirties. And I'm gonna ask you about the 50, 50 plus later because I know you got you've you've done so much work on that. But on these three stages, what would be key things that you've noticed or you've learned in you know women in their twenties, women in their thirties, women in their forties? Women in their twenties, the most one of the most sort of marked changes is their attitude to gender per se. And of course that's true of the younger audience as well, kind of girls in their teens, um, questioning notions of gender identity, um, often finding even the idea of gender offensive, but certainly associating specific um, attributes um, or ways of being with gender is often rejected by that by that younger audience. Um, so the 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 attitude attitude to gender and and it's it's a feel feels like a really sort of positive and progressive thing often that women refuse at that age to be limited by by their gender. 
Then I guess in the 30s, the most marked trend, and this there's a great book called All the Single Ladies published in the US about the growth of women who have decided that they don't want to get married or they don't want to settle down or they don't want to have children, that this is a really big growth audience. And while many of them may indeed ultimately settle down and may indeed have children, certainly there isn't this sort of prescribed script for women which was internalised at a really young age, certainly from women of my generation and previous generations, where one felt that, you know, the sort of Bridget Jones thing, that they're sort of terrified of being being alone, being left alone. That isn't something that younger women tend to feel in the same way, that they don't need the security of a relationship or marriage or even having a family, that often they're very happy to see life as a bit of an adventure and it doesn't conform to the traditional bell curve where marriage and children is the zenith and somehow everything is leading up to that and everything after it is a bit of a disappointment. Um, so there's a sense of liberation, I think, for younger women from that prescribed from that prescribed script. Um, and then as women go into their 40s and 50s, um, certainly a sense that age has become le- much less defining, still a frustration amongst that age group, certainly once you get into your 40s and when you get to 50, uh, a frustration that the world still seems to be um, critical of age and that there is a kind of powerful, useful lens um which says that everything youthful is positive and everything about ageing is negative. But I think that that will kind of quite radically alter, certainly as the baby boomers start to take charge and start to make their voices heard. There will certainly be a shift in notions of age and ageism will become the sort of new sexism. But for women, I think the ageing process is especially, especially punishing because, of course, they are particularly vulnerable to ageism because of the emphasis on appearance um that is that is kind of put in our culture on on women and that that's much more punishing for women than it is for men yeah it's it's interesting because i think it's also a combination with the traditional roles of of what a woman was supposed to do and you the closer you get to the point where you can't fulfill the functions of being you know the the pretty accessory and or the you know the bearer of children the more it seems like there is nothing for women left to do which which is quite confusing i remember we were looking into um, a while back into fertility trackers for a client of ours. And one of the things that we we, we realized was that they were called fertility trackers. They were not called health trackers. They were effectively trying to track how likely women were to have babies, not how healthy women were. And we we had a very interesting conversation back then with, with some of the producers of this to say, well, but isn't that assuming that women just track for one specific reason? There's no other reason to track your health, your, your, you know, your kind of sexual health. And I think it took about five years before we, f- we saw the first tracker that was not a fertility tracker. That was just a health tracker for women. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the solutions that are provided seem to be shaped around what the expectations of a woman's role in in the world is. Um, and as you said, as that's changing, there are some products which are kind of keeping up, but there's a lot of products which are still kind of back there and you realize, well, this is not going to help me because I, I'm not in the stage of life where this assumes that I am. And I think, interestingly, 
it's more and more obvious as you were quoting in some of the research that, that you publish on your website, um, it's more obvious to, to women who are in their 50s where, I mean, j- just the fact that, you know, you, you start calling women older women when they're in their 50s and, you know, you, you go into research groups and you see these kind of terrified looks because I don't think anyone considers themselves old when they're in their 50s. Um, can you tell me a bit about the, the work that you've been doing with um, 55 plus women? Yeah, I mean, we do we do quite a lot of work with 55 plus women with the, with the, with the, because of the nature of some of the clients that we have. But we did do a bespoke piece of research ourselves because we were so, um, we were so, first of all, we were so impressed by the amount of, um, I guess, by the, by the, well, first of all, by the, amazing growth in volume terms of the audience and everybody talks about the aging population and everyone talks about the aging population in terms of the problems that it represents but in fact um it could be seen as an incredibly positive thing for culture and for society that you have a great swathe of wise and experienced people um who are there to um influence the younger generations and I guess when you look at the audience, um, the sort of 50 plus audience, they're very, very different to their older age cohorts. So thinking about the 80 and 90 pluses who we've done research amongst as well. And they were described as the silent generation. So they're the sort of post-war generation, um, much more conservative, much more likely to conform to, I guess, the traditional female ideals of the 19. 19- 50s um but the younger age cohort the 55 to 75 and even up to 80 age cohort are the audience of women who really represent a sort of proper new generation of women who challenge all of the um all of those conformist ideas um and so when you do research with them they would never describe the stage of their life that they're going that they're going through now as something negative. In fact, they see it as a period of tremendous enlightenment um, and they feel really freed and liberated from partly the responsibilities and the pressures of having children because their children have often flown the nest now, but they're not, in their minds, empty nesters. It isn't a a negative thing, it's a positive thing. And they're now feeling immensely free and liberated to do the things that they've always wanted to do. There's a reprioritization that happens with women of that age as well, I think, where they um, are able to see, I guess, the way that they had lived their lives previously, the sort of speed at which they'd they'd led their lives, also being so conscious of what other people thought of them, that all of those things seem to kind of drop away for them. And they're finally able to just be themselves. They have the confidence to say what they think. They have highly developed female networks of friends who they spend loads of time with, who they laugh a lot with. so we feel that there's a huge opportunity to target that audience. They're also uh, the last audience probably to have um, final salary pensions and to uh, have benefited from buying houses at a young age. So they are fantastically um, lucrative audience to go after and, and certainly largely ignored. And when we, I mean, we, we, we had a meeting with them um, 
with an agency once and we were asking whether they thought their client might be interested in looking at the audience we literally talk to the hand my client can barely think about women but thinking about older women would be just one step too far so um you know it, it's an audience that people feel very nervous about addressing and it's partly i think because people think well if you target older women or older people uh you're going to put off all of the young people um and that seems like a sort of crazy prejudice from our point of view and sort of criminally negligent if you're in charge of growing a business not to look at the not to look at this audience part of the services that you provide is also um, working with clients to to envision new solutions new experiences new um, uh, messaging for 55 plus women and i'd actually be interesting to hear about some of the examples of this if, the, if this is something that you've 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 been doing because uh, to be honest the the most overt example that i can think of of something being bespoke developed for for you know well 55 plus was actually not it was 70 plus uh, of a product being developed for that and experience with that that age group in mind it, I, was something I actually saw on a TV series. There's this Netflix um, uh, series called Frankie and Grace, which is brilliant. It's got Jane Fonda in it. Um, and they are 70 year old and they decide that they don't want to be retired. They want to go into business and they find a niche, which is um, vibrators for older women. And I thought that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. But isn't it sad that it's just it it's just in a movie? So do you do you have any real life examples for me? Something that you've seen where people have gone, yeah, you know what? We're we're gonna do something that's bespoke and it's gonna be different. Well, I mean, the, the, the truth of it is, and this isn't just true of older women, this is also true across the board, is that there has been this quite sort of radical shift towards women authored brands and businesses which we think is one of the you know biggest and most interesting um ideas i guess happening in the in this in this new normal so you do have um women starting up starting up businesses like fighting 50 where they're looking at looking at um uh, developing developing a platform, talking to women who are over 50 about brands that are right for them. And you do have women starting up beauty brands which are specifically targeting the older audience. But you also have brands like Ruby Love or Heist who are de- which are developed by women which are completely changing the way some categories are operating. And of course you have this growth in female influencers um, and most influencers are women. Um, and most of the people who have the most influence in markets now are women targeting women. And so the, there has been a sort of radical departure away from this idea of brands and businesses run by men talking to women towards brands and businesses run by women who are properly meeting the needs of women because they understand them in close and intimate intimate detail. So. I think we're going to see a lot more Grace and Frankie's um, and I hope we are going to see a lot more Grace and Frankie's um, at, and not just at the 50 plus end of the spectrum, but throughout all all age groups. Some of the some of the ideas in what you've just said are also to be found in one of the books that you that you wrote with you with with Philippa, your uh, business partner. Inside Her Pretty Little Head is one of those books. And the I think the key argument in that is that marketing should not be afraid to try to speak differently to men, women, and then to women at different stages in life. Can you expand a bit more on, on that theory and how you think it's, it, it still holds in this kind of age of 
hyper-equalitarianism where everybody needs to be the same and we can't be speaking differently to people and we just have to be careful that we're not triggering things. There's a, amongst younger women, there is a heightened, certainly a heightened sensitivity towards definition by ge- by gender. Many would find it offensive and feel that it's limiting. And so there are brands out there who are de-gendering like H&M and there are quite a few fashion brands who are effectively gender neutral. Um, and I guess what we what we set out to do is raise issues around the limiting ideas about women that marketing presents. And that's what we've always tried to do is try and eradicate that. Um, but we've also sought to give credence and priority to the things women say are important to them, but get ignored. And sometimes those things are different to the things that men prioritize, either because of the particular pressures that women are under or because of the um, different interests that might, women might have in different categories that they might be engaging with. So if those happen to be different to the things men prioritise, then we'll always impress upon clients the need to understand and represent those female priorities equally because I guess the default mode had always been masculine or male. Um, the bigger issue for us was the fact that so much of what women cared about seemed to be being ignored or sidelined um, to the male priority. Um, yeah. How do you socialize the, this kind of research inside a company? How, 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 how can you start this kind of conversation? Well, we, the work that we do inside companies tends to be consciousness raising as much as anything. So about helping clients understand the unconscious biases that are going on, because there, there, there are very few people, very few companies now that are overtly sort of sexist in the way that they think or in the way that they do things. So most of the biases are quite unconscious. So we find helping clients understand where there are um, inadvertent assumptions about the way people make decisions is the best way to do it. But there's also nothing more powerful, we think, than getting clients into a viewed facility to listen to women talk about their products and to talk about how alienated they often feel by the way that their products get marketed. Um, It's fantastically important that they hear it kind of direct from female customers. But there are, you know, there are are many different methods. The other way is often engaging women within the organisation to represent female customers. so we do a, a mixture of things kind of we can do we do presentations and workshops um get people to view groups but it's all about helping people understand and accept that there are unconscious biases in the way things that get done which are very unhelpful when you're trying to make the most of the female opportunity and uh, as we're getting close to to the end of this do you think that there is there are experiences or places where brands and clients still miss the point um i mean we, i know we've discussed that there's a there's been a fair bit of progress but do you feel that there is there's a space where yeah more work is needed our feeling is that there's a, a whole lot of progress has been made but of course there are lots of brands out there that still present women in a limiting way dopey self-obsessed or encouraging them to conform to a particularly sort of unhealthy ideal So for every Dove ad, there's a Kardashian tweet telling women to eat appetite-suppressing lollipops. And for every Sports England ad, there's some hyper-sexualized fashion ad. And for every Me Too campaign, there are female influencers obsessing about cleaning house or perfecting the smoky eye. 
Um, but there is, we think, greater discernment and judgment in female customers now, and they're becoming increasingly sensitized to when they're being presented in a way that's harmful to them. And there's some sense of responsibility, too, in the marketing community, community with kind of Unilever being at the at the forefront often to reject the stuff that evidently does hold women back, you know, but while being realistic, and I think it's important to still be realistic and relaxed and okay about the fact that women do enjoy fashion, beauty and homewares, as well as cars, technology and and beer. So there's still lots of work to be done, we would say, but we hope that with the pressure, I guess, that women are bringing and are increasingly bringing um, to their purchase decisions, the pressure that gets put on companies to do things in a way that's helpful, not harmful to women. We think that we we think that we'll get there. And finally, what is one piece of advice that you would give to strategists that are working on products targeted at women and potentially that could be targeted at women? I think we would say now's the time to get to grips with the new normal. Um, and learning from female authored brands is crucial. So look at the brands that women have started themselves, understand the way they do things, understand the way they communicate and market to women, and you'll find a way through. So Jane, we are back two days after our initial recording because something has happened in the meantime and we want to discuss it. So. Um, Let's talk very quickly through what's happened, which is the ASA has passed its first actual ban of um, of two TV adverts that are basically infringing on gender stereotyping rules. Um, and it's created quite an uproar in the industry. Some people are uh, agreeing with the ASA, some people are disagreeing. Why do you think this is uh, this is relevant at this stage? Well, people do seem to be pretty surprised that the ASA has shown its teeth on gender stereotyping. And I guess while any new guidelines are going to trip up some brands who possibly haven't given it adequate consideration or the content of them adequate consideration on balance, I think we'd say it's a great way to raise consciousness of those implicit biases in marketing and not just in marketing, but in the world all around us. When we've done studies around understanding femininity, the most recent one we've done is with a with a media company called Mindshare. It's been really clear that women are keen to see those traditional roles evolve and that ascribing traditional roles to one gender was believed to hold women back. And of course, we know that women do 60% more unpaid work than men and that that unpaid work often takes precedence over un- overpaid work, which of course in turn creates a greater gender pay gap in paid roles. So having aspects of our culture, even if it is just a car ad or just a um, an ad for a food product, giving some sort of tacit permission for incompetence for men around some of the unpaid work is going to be harmful for women. And it's also pretty offensive for men who are doing a brilliant job of looking after their children too. And equally, the presentation of women as passive is a really time-honored trope in marketing. So it's good to see that challenge too. So I think what we think is we're probably entering this new stage of development and marketing, this new normal, where it's not just the explicit and obvious biases that are going to be held to account, but the unconscious and implicit biases, which are often harder for women to, to call out. Do you think that um, something could have been done differently in the creation of the, these ads? How How do you think that the creative process should have been run so that they didn't end up in the place where they, they ended up? I think the the 
Unconscious biases are pretty well documented. I mean, we're working on a thesis at the moment that basically lays out all of those unconscious biases, many of which are being picked up by the ASA rulings. But if you just look at the ASA um, website and look at the rulings, it's really clear. It's really clear that those those particular pieces of advertising did contravene them. And they're there for a reason, because a lot of that gender stereotyping has been proven to be harmful, uh, not just to women, but for men too. So you seem to be on the side of those who say this is a good thing and you expect more of this to come, right? I think there's definitely going to be more to follow and there's definitely going to be more controversy. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much again, Jane, for taking the time and then again for just quickly jumping on a call to talk about this. Um, And thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much.